our holy and gracious God, we thank you that even though you are so far above us, infinitely above our imagination of who you could even be, thank you that you have deigned to speak to your people. We thank you for the Bible, for the words of Scripture, that that through this you speak your truth to your people. That this is your revelation of who you are to us. We thank you for that, God. And we ask that this morning as we open it together, as we look at your word, that you would speak the truth to us so that we would know you truly and that we'd be able to uh, respond with with joy-filled hearts, knowing who you are, knowing what you've done. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, when I first moved here to Michigan, I, I knew very little about uh, Michigan geography. I, I could probably point out where Detroit was. I knew where Grand Rapids was. I knew where Lettington was because we'd moved here. And a couple of towns along the way I could point out. But if someone uh, kind of named a different town that was a bit obscure to me, say something like, oh, yeah, he's from Rockford, I, I would have no idea what you're talking about. So I'd go onto Google Maps and I'd type in Rockford, Michigan, and, and punch in. This is what I get. I think, okay, well... That doesn't really help me because I don't know where anything there is. If I found myself in Rockford, I'd know how to get from this street to that street, but it doesn't really help me understand where in Michigan Rockford is. So, okay, I've got to zoom out another level, and, and kind of this is the next level. Then I think, okay, that still doesn't really help me. It, there, 131 is there on the, on the left side of the map, but I don't really know where 131 is. So I have got really still no idea where Rockford is, so I've got to zoom out another level. And here there's a tiny glimmer of hope. I don't know if you can see it here, but just in the corner here, is I-96. And I know where I-96 is. I've been on I-96. When we lived in, in Illinois, we used to go from Chicago to uh, Farmington, Michigan, near Detroit, where my in-laws live. And so we've traveled I-96. So now I know that Rockford's somewhere north of a line that goes from Chicago to Detroit. But of course, I still don't really know where Rockford is. So I've got to zoom out another level. And then, then okay, Grand Rapids is there, in the, the bottom center. There's Grand Rapids. I know, roughly speaking, where Grand Rapids is. So now I know that that Rockford is sort of a little bit northeast of Grand Rapids. But if you really want to be clear on where a town in Michigan is, right, you have to be able to put it on your little hand map. And I still can't really put it on my hand map. I know basically Grand Rapids is here-ish, but okay, so I've got to zoom out three or four more times so I get the whole state of Michigan. Okay, all right, well, Rockford, Michigan is there. I'm good. Now I know where Rockford is. You and I experience life always zoomed in. The stuff that's that right in front of us on our to-do list, on our checklist, these are the things that are, that are right up in the forefront. So uh, for you students, you're looking at maybe you've got an assignment that's due before Thanksgiving, and that's what's really on your radar. I've got this homework I've got to do. That's what's on your radar. Or maybe you've got something at work, a meeting or a presentation or something like that, and that's what's in the forefront of your mind. That's right in front of you. Or maybe it's even more immediate than that. You're thinking, well, I've got to get dinner on the table after church. I don't know what we're going to eat for our family. The stuff that's right in front of us is what's in our focus, and and we're all the way zoomed in, that's what's right there. But if any of that's going to make any sense, we've got to zoom out a level and say, okay, well, why am I doing this school assignment? What's the purpose of this work meeting? Why am I feeding my family in the first place? And the farther out we can zoom, the more sense we can make of the whole picture. So that's what we're going to do this morning as we wrap up the story of Joseph and as we wrap up the whole book of Genesis that we've been studying together. Uh, We've heard a lot of the stories, but now we're getting to the point of saying, okay, what's the point of all this? What is this really teaching us? What's the point of the book of Genesis, really? What's the point of Joseph? What's the point of Abraham? What's the point? So we're going to start with the story of Joseph again, picking up where we left off. And then we're going to zoom out using three questions to zoom out three different levels to really get a picture of what's going on uh, here in the book of Genesis and what this is all about. 
Um, we're going to start in Genesis 42, so if you turn there in your Bibles, that would be a good thing to have that open. We're not going to be able to go through every single verse. We're going from Genesis 42 to Genesis 50, so that would really take up uh, more time than we have this morning. But um, I invite you to turn at least to Genesis 42 to get started. Um, if you're using the Pew Bibles, this is found on page 43, so right near the beginning of it, page 43, Genesis 42. So uh, this is where we left off in the story of Joseph. Last week we saw there's all sorts of twists and turns in his life, right? So we, we heard a little bit in the, in the storybook Bible just a moment ago where he's elevated in his father's house. He's the favorite son. He has these dreams that he's going to be above all his brothers. And then all of a sudden he gets sold into slavery and the whole thing comes crashing down. And then after that he gets uh, extended to a high position, elevated to a high position in Potiphar's house. And there's a false accusation. He gets thrown down in jail, and he's down at the bottom again. And then in jail, God is with him, and the jailer sees that, and he gets elevated again in jail, and, and we're wondering what's going to happen. Finally, at the end of all those twists and turns, Joseph is like second in command in Egypt. So things have turned out really well for Joseph. This is good for him, right? But here's where we've got to ask a question. Why is Joseph in Egypt in the first place? Yeah, things have turned out well in his life, but why is he there in the first place? So this is where we have to zoom out and really start asking questions. So this is where we pick up in Genesis 42. Remember that Joseph's father is Jacob. So when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. So the immediate problem before us here with this family is that the whole region is experiencing famine or drought. There's a shortage of food, and Joseph's family is threatened with starvation. They just don't know where the next meal is going to come from. So the fact that there is grain stored up in Egypt is literally, for them, a lifesaver. And just so we're clear on this, who's in charge of the grain in Egypt? Look at the next verse, verse 6. Now Joseph was governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So this is great. This family that doesn't have food anymore in Canaan has an in with a guy who's in charge of all the grain of Egypt. This is a good thing. The problem is that this inside connection happens to be the hated brother that they sold in slavery years before. So there's family dysfunction here that's further threatening the survival of this family. Now, there's a really interesting story from getting from Genesis 42 to Genesis 45. Joseph's brothers don't recognize him. He recognizes them, and, and so he sends them all these tests to, to see who they are, to see if their character is developed. There's all sorts of stuff that goes on there, and he's reconciling the family. We don't have time to read that whole story. It's really interesting. I encourage you to read that this week. But, but the point of it is that Joseph discovers that his brothers really have changed. Their character has developed over time. And not only that, but specifically his brother Judah, his older brother Judah, has assumed leadership of the family. That becomes important much later on in the story. But the question before us this morning is really focused. Why is Joseph in Egypt in the first place? After all that stuff with his brothers, when we get to Genesis 45, Joseph himself is able to give a very clear answer to this question. So Joseph is going to uh, tell his brothers that, that it's him the one that they sent to Egypt. This is in Genesis 45, beginning in verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. 
And now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land and for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He may be father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, This is what your son Joseph says. God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herbs and all that you have, I will provide for you because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. Joseph understands now. He gets everything that's happened to him by this point. He's able to clearly say, it wasn't my brothers who sent me to Egypt. It was God who sent me to Egypt, and he sent me for a particular purpose. All the twists and turns of life that have put him here have put him in the exact position that he needed to be to be able to store up food in Egypt and then to provide for his family. God made a great salvation of lives through Joseph by sending him to Egypt. I mean, think about it. He couldn't have done this from his father's household in Canaan. He wouldn't have had access to all the grain in Egypt to store it up in the first place. He wouldn't have been able to do this in Potiphar's house, even when he was in Egypt, because again, he wouldn't have had access to Pharaoh. It took God sending him in slavery to Egypt and then sending him to prison in Egypt for him to finally be able to uh, interact with one of Pharaoh's officials and get put in this high place where he can store up all this grain and provide for his family. So from the all the way zoomed in perspective of what's in front of Joseph in his everyday reality, none of those twists and turns would have made any sense. But now that he's able to zoom back and see the whole picture, he's able to say that God has orchestrated all of this to do a particular thing at a particular time. Joseph is in Egypt to save his family. I mean, that's the reason. When we zoom out, we can see that that's the reason that he's there in the first place. But we've got to ask another question now. Why is God so interested in saving this family? Again, we've got to zoom out to a broader perspective. So we were just looking at Genesis 37 to 50, really, and now we've got to go back to Genesis 12 and get most of the book of Genesis in mind to say, why is God so concerned about this particular family? Let's start with a promise to a man named Abram. Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. Here's the promise. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God had made a promise to Joseph's great-grandfather to Abraham. He said that he would make him into a, a great nation, that, that all the families on earth would be blessed through this one man and his family. And God reiterates that promise later in Genesis 15. says, your offspring are going to be as countless as all the stars in the sky, and I will give them a good land to live in. And then God makes that same promise to Abraham's son, Isaac. I will give you land. I will give you countless descendants. I will make you a blessing to all the people on earth. And then again, to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, the same promises of land, of descendants, of being a blessing to the whole world. 
Well, Joseph is Abraham's grandson. That means that he and his family are heirs to the promise that God made to Abraham. Now, at this point, we see that the offspring side is, is, is blossoming. So it went from just Abraham and his wife to one son, Isaac, by the time they were 190 years old. And then Isaac has two sons, but one of them is excluded from the promise, Esau. And you've got then Jacob. So it goes one, one, one. Then all of a sudden, Jacob has 12 sons. And so we're starting to feel good about the uh, sustenance of this particular family. But just when we're starting to feel good about them getting bigger and being more sustainable, Famine comes and threatens their whole existence. So God sent Joseph to Egypt to save this family because he had made a promise to Abraham in the first place. So that's why Joseph is in this particular spot. It's, it's to save this family because he had made a promise to them. So by the end of the book of Genesis, when we get to Genesis 50, we see this family that was just tiny at the beginning. Just a man and his wife, Abraham and Sarah, is now 70. 70 people in Egypt and growing and expanding and in a safe place. So if we go from the details of Joseph's life, we zoom out one level and see that God brought him to Egypt to save his family at a particular time. And then we can zoom out to another level and see that God is so concerned about saving this family because he made a promise to Abraham. But there's still a question here. Why did God make this promise to Abraham in the first place? This is where we have to zoom out even farther. We're going to zoom out as far as we're going to go now. And here we've got to go back to the very beginning to see what is the point of this family. Why are they needed anyway? So we go back to the account of creation. Look at Genesis 1 and 2. And God created the whole world to be a good place. This is the, the culmination of creation here. Genesis 1, toward the end, of the, cha- uh, the end of chapter 1 of Genesis. God creates humans. He blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sky and the birds, the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. So you go back to the very beginning the Bible. Genesis 1, you see, this is what God did. He designed and created, called into order a world that's perfectly functioning. Everything has its form. Everything has a purpose. Everything has a function. And God is there with his people and everything's right. Everything's how it's supposed to be. But then there was a serpent that came along and and made the man and woman that God had created question God's good order. So chapter 3 of Genesis, we get this. The serpent says to the woman, did God really say You must not eat from any tree in the garden. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And so with this first act of disobedience, creation begins to unravel. The whole thing starts to to be marred by this, this poison that has seeped into the hearts of humans. So the good order that was designed by God is suddenly disrupted here. Humans think that they know better than God, and so they try to play God, and the whole world suffers as a result. 
But we're backing off as far as we can to get the, the biggest perspective possible. So, so we see the beginning. We see Genesis 1 and 2. We see the start of what, what happens in Genesis 3 to start bringing the whole mess of life into the world. And we've seen that through the book of Genesis. You've seen that in your own life. But we also have to go far enough back to see that there's an end here, too. So we're going to look at the last two chapters of the Bible here. This is, this is where this whole story is going. So Genesis, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 21. This is where this is all heading. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then Revelation 22, the next chapter, the very last chapter of the Bible, the angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of a great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So it's instructive to back off and see that's the first two chapters of the Bible, Revelation or Genesis 1 and 2, and the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. So we see the bookends here, and these are really instructive because the first two are saying, yes, God created the world good. It has good order. God being with his people, blessing them, protecting them, providing for them in the garden. And then you get Genesis 3 and all the mess of life in there. And then, but you can back off and see the end and see in Revelation 21 and 22, it's restored. God is with his people again. He's providing for them. He's protecting them. He's with them. He's present with them in this city in a restored garden. The question is, how do you get from Genesis 1 and 2 through Genesis 3 all the way up to Revelation 21 and 22? How does it happen? Human rebellion against God has disrupted the whole thing. That's the mess that started in Genesis 3. And as long as humans continue to reject God, continue to live in ignorance of God, the whole mess of life is going to reign. And so God chooses Abraham to start something new. He chooses Abraham as part of his great rescue, starting in Genesis 3, going all the way through to the end of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22. So if we see Joseph's story as God's rescue of his family at a particular time, we can back off and see that the story of Abraham's family, the larger story of Abraham's family, is the start of God's rescue plan for the whole world. So that, that promise that we saw in Genesis 12 to Abraham, that he would be a blessing to all people, that's really saying that God is going to show himself to the world through Abraham and his family. In other words, he's going to show the world who he is through his interaction with this particular people group, with Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel. That's what the promise of land and descendants and blessing to all the people, that's what it's really about. God is going to show the world that he is the source of all good, and he's going to do it through this family. So as you look at the history of Israel, you see that, that God is with them. He is present with them. He's providing for them day after day after day. He's protecting them from stronger nations surrounding them so that when they go through the land, all the other nations that are bigger and more powerful than them are terrified of them because they can see that God's hand is on this people. And God shows his, his wisdom and his revelation through all of the laws and everything else in the Old Testament that he's showing who he is to this people. 
You see God's power at work through the people of Israel. There, read the Old Testament. There are some incredible stories of power. There. There's there, one story of this guy named Gideon who's really fearful. He's a scared guy. He's not the kind of guy you'd want to lead your army. And he's facing this huge, countless army of the Midianites. And he starts with about 30,000 guys. And God says, that's too many. Send 20,000 of them home. So he's got 10,000 men then going against this sea of an army in front of him. And God says, that's still too many. Drops it down to something like 300 guys. And he sends them out, 300 guys and a scared leader with a torch in a hand and a trumpet in the other hand. And they surround the Midianite camp. They blow the trumpets. They uncover their torches. And they don't even lift a sword. And God takes care of that whole army and sends them packing, destroying a whole army that they never could have done. Their own. I mean, this is the kind of thing that we see again and again and again in the Old Testament. God is showing his power. He's showing his love. He's showing his mercy through Abraham's family. But the problem is that's not enough. Israel's going to fail. They're not going to reflect God's good character. They're going to have to be disciplined because they turn away from God and they're going to try to live like every other people surrounding them. So Israel fails. Now, do you think God knew that they were going to fail? Of course he did. The whole point of this thing, starting in Genesis 3, is that without God we are hopeless, right? Adam and Eve thought that maybe they could sort of become God-like and sort of take on some divine characteristics, but that started the whole unraveling of creation. The whole point is that we desperately need God. There is no hope unless we are living fully reliantly on God himself. So God knew this was going to happen, and after all this stuff with Israel, all this stuff through Abraham's family, showing the surrounding nations who he is, showing his holiness, showing his character, showing his grace, showing his mercy. He sends his own son, Jesus. And Jesus becomes then the linchpin getting from Genesis 3 back to the good that God created, Revelation 21 and 22. Jesus is the center of that story. Everything that has gone before has been pointing to him and everything that goes after is pointing back to him and saying that's how we know that God is rescuing the world. Now, we say that kind of thing a lot, but I want you to understand what's involved in that, what's involved in this great rescue, how Jesus really is the pivotal event here. So I want you to see that the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, these are accomplishing God's great rescue. Here's how. Jesus' life rescues us from darkness. So our ignorance leaves us helpless to ever understand anything really true about God. We're walking around in darkness. We'd never know who God is. And yet God sends Jesus as his own light, shining into the darkness so that we can know who God is truly and that we can see what a life lived in relation to God really is. The life of Jesus rescues us from darkness. The death of Jesus rescues us from the penalty of our sins. Our rebellion against God, like us doing the same thing that Adam and Eve did, saying, well, we could probably do a better job than God, rejecting his plan, rejecting his path. Our rebellion against God earns us a death sentence hanging over our heads. But the death of Jesus is in our place. The death of Jesus accomplishes the forgiveness of the penalty of our sins. So that death penalty is removed because Jesus died in our place. So the death of Jesus rescues us from the penalty of sin. The resurrection of Jesus rescues us from the final sting of death. Our little existence from birth to death is just this tiny little blip. And that's it. Except that's not really it. 
The sting of death is removed because Jesus rises from the grave. He rises from death. The first of many to come who are in him who will rise from death to life again. So the the resurrection of Jesus rescues us from the final sting of death. And then the ascension of Jesus. He ascends and sits at the right hand of God. The ascension of Jesus rescues us from despair, from anxiety. Because we look around us, there's all sorts of things right in front of our face that are really impressive. Rulers, kings, governments. These are really impressive things and they can really terrify us. But the Bible says that Jesus ascended to the right hand of God, which means that he is right now king over everything. It means that he is already on his throne. And that means that we can trust him because he's in control. and He loves us. So the ascension of Jesus rescues us from despair. So what this means is that darkness doesn't win. The life of Jesus is light shining into the darkness. It means that sin doesn't win. The death of Jesus rescues us from that. It means that the grave doesn't win. Death doesn't win. The resurrection of Jesus rescues us from that. It means that despair and hopelessness, that doesn't win because Jesus is king. He's ascended. He's on the throne. So if we back off to the whole scope of the Bible, what we're seeing is that God is making the world right. If you look from Genesis 1 all the way through to Revelation 22, that's the story of the Bible. It's the story of God's great rescue. This is what God is doing to make all things right. We've zoomed all the way out. I want to zoom back in now. Because we have to talk about where you and I fit in this picture. I think this is really encouraging. If, if we zoom in at the story of Joseph, where we just were, we can see that, that Joseph had a very particular role at a very particular time in God's big rescue plan from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. He had a particular point in time in that. He's really important for about a dozen chapters in Genesis. But really after that, he kind of fades in importance. Even by the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, He's not the most prominent brother anymore. Yes, he was for a dozen chapters, but by the end, Judah, his older brother, is the one who's the important one. He's the one who's the leader of the family. Because one of Judah's sons is going to be the famous King David. And one of David's sons is going to be Jesus, the rescuer. But I think this is really cool because it means that God uses the right people at the right time to accomplish a particular thing. And it means he's going to use different people for different, in different ways along the way. And that means that God can use you and me. When we zero on, zoom into our little space of existence, God can use you and me to accomplish his purposes too. If he could use Joseph for just a, a tiny little slice of that, that big picture from, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, if he can use Joseph as a particular, in a particular way, well, then he can use you or me too. We too can be part of that big rescue plan. Now, on the one hand, that could cause a great deal of anxiety. You think, okay, well... I've got to get this right. If I mess up, I'm going to lose my big chance and maybe something will, will go wrong because of what, what I have done, because of my failures. But fortunately, the story of Joseph corrects that. If God really wants you somewhere, if he has a particular task for you, well, he's going to get you there. Uh, the, the late uh, Christian singer Rich Mullins used to have people come up to him and, and ask him, you know, what do I do with my life? What does God want me to do? Because they had a lot of anxiety about this. And he said, oh, okay, I can tell you what God wants you to do. Love God and love people. And they said, no, 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 I, I want specifics. I, I know, what do I do with my life? What, what, who do I marry? What school do I go to? What job should I take? I want to know specifically, what, what do I do? I said, well, okay. You love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and you love your neighbor as yourself. You, you do those things, and that's God's will. And if God wants you somewhere, say Egypt, then he's going to send you ten jealous brothers, and he's going to get you there. 
I think that's really, really freeing. Because it means that you don't have to have anxiety. You don't have to be paralyzed by, okay, I've got to get this exactly right. You live your life doing what God has called you to do. Yes, love God with all your heart. Love your neighbors as yourself. And he will get you to the places that he wants you to be able to accomplish his purposes. So you know the guidelines. You love God. You know you love others. And you know the mission that, God, that Jesus has given his church. Go and, and make more followers of me. So you do those things. If you love God, if you love others, if you're spending your whole life making disciples, then you can trust God that he's going to do exactly what he has set out to do. I, I uh, came across a story. Someone shared this with me that I thought was, was really encouraging. I hope it's encouraging to you too. It's, it's a true story. A young man was sharing his, his testimony of how he came to faith. And he said he was stationed uh, briefly in Sydney, Australia during World War II. And uh, he was going on the street one day, and, and a middle-aged man stopped him and said, you know, I, I don't mean to offend you, but, but I have a question. If you were to die, do you know if you're going to heaven or hell? Because the Bible says it's one or the other. I don't mean to offend you. you know, God bless you. Goodbye. And he just left him at that. And the guy had never really thought about eternity before, and it, the, the question kept rattling around in his head. He couldn't get it out of his head, so it started this whole search, and he ended up going to church. And, and he came to know Jesus through that man asking him a question, getting him to start thinking about eternity and what that means. Well, so a pastor was there and, and heard that story. And he traveled elsewhere, and he was telling the story. And afterwards, someone came up to him and said, Hey, that's my story, too. I was stationed in Sydney, and this guy asked me this question, and I didn't have an answer for it, so I started searching. I went to church, and I came to faith in Jesus through that. And as this, this pastor had opportunity to, to speak at different churches and share these stories, he found time after time after time, in, in eight, at least eight different people, different parts of the world, had that same story. This guy asked a question in Sydney, and it started this whole train of thought. I ended up going to church. I found faith in Christ because I didn't have an answer to that question. And that, that, was, a, that was a link in the chain getting me to understand that Jesus really is the hope of the world. Well, this pastor finally had a chance to, to be in Australia, and he tracked this guy down. And he was really excited because here's the guy whose influence has spread over the world. This is what the man said. I'm not going to get through this. I'm sorry. He said, for about 25 years, I've been speaking to at least 10 people a day. I have only one line of approach. I've spoken to hundreds a year. I've spoken to thousands over the years. He's an old man at this point in his 70s, and he's, he's suffering from, from Parkinson's disease, and he starts to tear up at this point. He says, you know what? I've never led anyone to Christ. To me, that is such an encouraging story. Because it means that, that you might not ever see the impact that you have on another person. But God is doing his work. If you love God, if you love other people, you spend your whole life on the mission that Jesus has given you, appointing other people to him and helping them follow him, then you can trust that God will do exactly what he has put in front of you. Because it's his work in his timing. It's powerful by him, not because you get everything perfect. And of course, we'd love to zoom out at any point and see, well, what impact did I have on that person? Did I point that person to Christ? What happened to that person's life? This guy spent 25 years talking to, to thousands of people, and he never, saw, he never saw himself the fruit of that, and yet God was using his faithful ministry to bring people to Christ all over the world. It's incredibly encouraging because it, it means that God is working in all sorts of ways that we don't even see and perceive. See, we're zoomed all the way in. We've got this tiny, little, limited perspective. But if we can zoom out 
so that we see the whole picture of God's great rescue from Genesis all the way through to the end of Revelation. That's enough then because we know that God is effectively doing his plan. Jesus is the pivotal point that we look back and say, yes, he's already done it and I know where it's going so I can live today faithfully to God and to praise him because I know where it's ending. I know that because of Jesus, that good end is assured 100% and we can live our life filled with hope and joy and freedom because it's God's work in God's time. And not only does that give us freedom to, to pour our life out in pointing people to Christ, but it should fill our hearts with praise for God. Because it means that, that he is the one who's doing this work. He's the one who created everything good in the first place back in Genesis. And he is the one who's making all things right now. And he is the one who will assure that that end in Revelation 22 is accomplished. At the very end of the book of Genesis, in chapter 50, Joseph's brothers are a little bit nervous still because they know that they did something terrible to their brother. They wanted to kill him. They sold him into slavery. They, what they did was wrong. And so they had a lot of anxiety about it. But there's a great verse here that Joseph explains what has happened. This is uh, Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. This is what Joseph says to his brothers. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish the saving of many lives. That is a verse of incredible hope. It means that nothing can ever, ever stop God's plan. God's in control. God loves us. And that means that we are free to praise him and to pour our whole lives out, pointing people to Jesus. Praise God. Please pray with me. Our holy and gracious God, we thank you so much for the gift of Scripture that we can look back and see how this world came to be in the first place. We can understand where things went wrong. We can see that you are doing something about it, that we have a place in it, and that in the end, everything is as it should be. When we doubt, Father, bolster our faith. In the name of Christ, our Lord and our Savior, our hope. Amen.